Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years of Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Happy Tuesday to you. Oh, we have so much news to share with you this hour, and I'm thrilled we're going to spend the time together. Just a quick word, because we're relatively new into the month of February, which means my truth tool is still relatively new. It is called Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. I laugh because who has not been in that situation before? You kind of think you're walking in circles. You want God's good and perfect will for your life. But if you're like me, you'd like the Lord to send you a map and just say, this is the way to walk and this is where you're going to land. And then that would violate the whole principle of Scripture that says we walk by faith and not by sight. We have to press into him, lean into him, trust him. Because blessed is he who believes and has not seen, right? We just need to understand he is God. We are not. And he is a God who can be trusted. And even when you think you're just walking around in circles, God is still doing something in, for, and through you. So it's about finding peace and confidence in your current challenges. And who among us doesn't have current challenges? I want to put this book in your hand. And we are listener-supported radio. So if you give a gift of any amount financially, I'm going to say thank you in a tangible way by sending you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Real simple name to remember, Connecting the Dots. All you need to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Give a gift of any amount. And my way of saying thank you for supporting this program is to send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. You can also do it online at In the Market with JanetParshall.org. In the Market with JanetParshall.org. Got to scroll down to the bottom of the page. 
You'll see the cover of the book, click on through, make your donation, and we'll send a copy to you. Just below the Truth Tool is a descriptor of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month at a level of their own choosing. You always get the monthly Truth Tool, but you'll also get a weekly newsletter as well. So 877-JANET58 or in the market with JanetParshall.org. Connecting the dots, this month's Truth Tool. We're going to start where we've started for over 100 days, and that is taking a look at Israel. CBN News reports. Here's my friend Chris Mitchell. Iranian-backed militia continue to carry out attacks in the region, despite the U.S. launching dozens of strikes over the weekend in retaliation for the deaths of three U.S. service members. An attack near a U.S. base in Syria killed six members of a U.S.-allied Kurdish militia. The Pentagon said more strikes against Iran's proxies are coming. This is the start of our response, and there will be additional actions taken to hold the IRGC and affiliated militias accountable for their attacks on U.S. and coalition forces. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Saudi's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman Monday. It's Blinken's fifth Mideast visit since the war in Gaza. He faces major challenges. Hamas and Israel are at odds over a potential truce and Israel dismissed calls for a Palestinian state. The U.N. announced it's launched an independent review of UNRWA after reports that its workers took part in the October 7th massacre. The IDF says it's raided the Hamas headquarters in Khan Yunus and found training materials for the October 7th attacks. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told IDF soldiers Israel has defeated more than half of Hamas's forces in Gaza, including 18 of 24 brigades. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant says Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar is on the run. Sinwar moves from hiding place to hiding place. He is unable to communicate with his surroundings. And in recent days, IDF fighters have found the materials in the places he has been recently. And thanks to them, we are improving our operations, deepening our grip on Hamas plans. Gilad also warned that Israel is prepared to take action against Hezbollah on its northern border if diplomacy fails. Hezbollah will not be able to threaten the residents of Israel through raids or through direct fire. I say here explicitly and unequivocally, if the political move does not succeed, we will not hesitate to use military force for the return of the residents safely to their homes. Currently, about 80,000 Israelis have left their homes on Israel's northern border. We all abandoned our homes, our businesses, everything. And that's it. The city is deserted. Scared people. In case of war, hospitals in the north are preparing underground wards. Now, that's my friend Chris Mitchell. He's the Middle East Bureau Chief for CBN News, located in Jerusalem. Now, before I tell you this next story, quickly remember, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The U.S. should act like terror sleeper cells are already here, says a border security expert. Here's more from my friends at CBN News. According to new data gathered by U.S. intelligence agencies, the risk of an assault by Hezbollah is rising alongside growing tensions in the region. Hezbollah is a very real threat to us here in the United States. Simone Ledeen, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Mideast Policy, says the Iran-backed terror group has a longer reach than many others in the region. They have sleeper cells here in the U.S. in many cities across the country. This has been documented in multiple court cases. Um, and we uh, have reason to believe that they also have caches 
where they have stored materials around the country um, in the event that someone hits the go button to start attacks. Uh, I believe they are pretty well prepared. They have been sitting in wait for the order to go for many believe for years now. As official Washington proceeds with caution due to concern about sparking a wider regional conflict, experts like Ladine warn we're already past that point. I think that we uh, we collectively are in uh, an expanding regional conflict. Um, and as much as we are resisting it right now and the current administration is resisting responding to it right now, we uh, we are in it. We should be reconsidering our strategic objectives. What's our end game here? Um, and how do we get from here to there? Because right now here is not a good place for the United States to be. It is not in the U.S. interest to be sort of on the defense. Since the hmm. start of the... So that's part of the story. Now we're going to obviously watch very carefully to see what happens. But surely when you see this... Axis of evil, and we talked about it yesterday with Bill Gertz of Iran and China and Russia and North Korea, and we see a multi-fronted assault on Israel. Remember, what is the thing that holds all these countries together? It is their animus toward the United States. So I'm, we've got great people on the watch, but again, we have the greatest protector of all in the one who loves us unconditionally. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We must never forget that. And he never gave us a spirit of fear. Back after this. David Hacker is with us. He is vice president of litigation and senior counsel at First Liberty, where he oversees all of First Liberty's litigation from state and federal trial courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I'm absolutely thrilled that he's going to be with us to break down the cake the case. No, that was Freudian, but the word cake is germane to this conversation. The case of Sweet Cakes by Melissa. This case, if you're counting, has been going on for 10 years. And David was in the courtroom last week to have the opportunity to hear oral arguments before the Oregon Court of Appeals. Now, I want you to be paying close attention because this is one of those cases that has a, a potential of profoundly impacting religious liberty in this country. It also goes to a transcendent question that the culture writ large is asking on why should people who bake cates be given a special pass when it becomes uh, their religious liberty against gay rights. And this is going to be, by the way, uh, the battle that's joined right now. Those are the two loggerheads. Does the First Amendment still mean what it's always said, or does somehow gay rights transcend that particular position? So to break this down, because this case, David, in many respects is like a yo-yo. It's back and forth and back and forth and up to the Supreme Court and back down again and vacated. And we're going to have to explain all of this to our friends. So let's just start, if you wouldn't mind. And thank you for being with me and thank you for the gift of your time. How did this case begin in the first place? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's it's great to be with you. So what happened is uh, Aaron and Melissa Klein opened a bakery back in 2007 in Oregon, and it was called Sweet Cakes by Melissa. And what they did is they specialized in custom cakes, you know, things that you would go in and not something you're buying a sheet cake off the shelf. This is something truly custom where Melissa and Aaron would sit down with you and and create almost a work of art for your um, for your celebration. And one of the things that they committed themselves to is, uh, you know, pursuant to their Christian faith, that they 
um, when they participated in weddings and provided cakes for weddings, that they believed that you know weddings should be between one man and one woman. And so they committed that those are the kind of weddings they would participate in. And, you know, they turned down all sorts of other kinds of cakes, you know, cakes that would, um, you know, have potentially profanity on them or cakes celebrating a divorce, that kind of stuff. They wouldn't do those. And so, um, but they did just amazing, amazing cakes. And one day in 2013, um, they were asked to make a custom design wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. And they politely declined. But little did they know that that polite declination would result in the full force of the state of Oregon coming after them. Hmm. Let me just underscore the fact that Melissa has said time and time again since 2014 that they are happy to serve anyone. But there's just something transcendent. And, David, I don't understand why this is such a difficult message to get through to the culture. But there's something transcendent, something very sacred about marriage, that it isn't just you know, the dress and say yes to the dress and what size your cake is going to be and how many bridesmaids you're going to have, that it's a promise made before a holy God uh, uh, about an institute that he created in the presence of witnesses. So it's not just a party. It isn't a celebration. It is a solemn oath. And for some reason, that idea makes the culture choke. They just can't understand it. So Uh, Obviously, Oregon said, sorry, you're wrong, but the case didn't stop there. Then it started this long trail of tears. So what happened next? Yeah, you're right. And it did kind of start this long, um, unfortunate saga for the clients. And so what happened next is the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries uh, came after the clients and their um, custom cake shop and imposed a financially devastating $135,000 fine against them uh, because they wouldn't do this one cake. <laughs> um, and to make matters worse, <laughs> during the process where the clients were in front of this commissioner for the Bureau of Labor of Indus- and Industries, the commissioner was making all sorts of anti-religious comments about their situation. Um, basically saying that they were using religion as an excuse and that they needed to learn from this and that they needed to be rehabilitated Whoa. by the state. Wow. So, I mean, just, I mean, talk about Orwellian tactics here by a government agency. Mm-hmm. And, and so they imposed this $135,000 fine and um, M- Melissa and Aaron appeal that to the Court of Appeals in Oregon, which upholds it and says, nope, that, that's okay. And so Aaron and Melissa appealed to the United States Supreme Court, and thankfully, thankfully, um, and this is their fir- that this is mind you the first trip, and I'm going to tell you about the second trip later. Yes, but right. their first trip, uh, the court said, um, no, this is wrong. Uh, the court at that time had just uh, um, handed down a decision in a similar case called Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, out of Colorado. And it basically said, listen, when the government agency that's investigating you is both the prosecutor and the judge and has all this bias built into the system, wanting to you know, rehabilitate you and, and uh, denigrating your faith, that's, that's, not, that's not constitutional. The First Amendment does not allow that. And so those kinds of biased proceedings uh, uh, have to be overturned. And so the court overturned what happened in Oregon and sent it back down to the Oregon courts to fix. <laughs> so... So uh, can, we, we, can I interrupt at this point? Yeah, I want to make ahead. sure our friends understand. Going, but but yeah. no, and this is why I talked about the yo-yo, but this is such an important case and why I'm so happy that you're here today to talk about it. So 
Masterpiece gets handed down. And the big takeaway, even for the common man to understand in this case, was the high court said, you can't be hostile toward religion. And they were nasty to Jack Phillips in the Masterpiece case. And the same thing about we're going to send you to a re-education camp. My word's not there, but re-education was part of their plan as well. And the pejoratives that were leveled against the man for his, quote, sincerely held religious beliefs. Now, that is a that's a concept we have enshrined and protected in this country for almost 250 years. So I'm pretty sure that the thinking for the court, if you can figure out how nine justices think, is they kicked it back, basically saying to Oregon, did you see how we just ruled here? Maybe you want to think this one through again. And so what happened when they sent it back? That's right. That's right. And so the Court of Appeals in Oregon then got the case back and um, issued a ruling that basically said, um, that the the commissioner did violate uh, the First Amendment and the client's rights um, by failing to be neutral towards them and neutral towards their religion. Um, and so the court struck the $135,000 damages award. And, um, you know, we can kind of leave it at there. And I'll tell you the rest of the story in a little bit here. You're a pro, David. <laughs> Thank you for recognizing the need to take a break. David Hacker is with us, VP of Litigation and Senior Counsel at First Liberty. His job there is to oversee all of First Liberty's litigation from state and federal trial courts all the way up to the Supreme Court. And he was sitting in front of the Oregon Court of Appeals just last week on this Sweet Cakes by Melissa case back after this. What if those times you felt like you were walking in circles were really God's way of leading you to his plan for your life? That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Learn how to make the most of the lessons you're learning now. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We're visiting with David Hacker, who is Vice President of Litigation and Senior Counsel at First Liberty. He was in the courtroom last week, the Oregon Court of Appeals, because lo, these many years, remember it started in 2014, going on for 10 years. This is the case that involves sweet cakes by Melissa. So to pick up exactly where we left off, gets kicked to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court vacates it, kicks it back to the Oregon Court of Appeals. The 135000 damage uh, award is stripped. But pick up the story, if you would, from there, David. Yeah. So from there, the Court of Appeals sends it back to Bully, this uh, Bureau of Labor and Industry, uh, which, again, imposes not a $135,000 fine, but a $30,000 fine. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of kind of they don't double down but they at least you know redo what the, the bad things that they had done the first time and still right. impose a fine right we'll be hostile so the, we just won't be quite as hostile I- exactly Got and it. so okay. um the clients appeal that again to the Oregon Court of Appeals which you know blesses that that ruling and then they go back up to the Supreme Court with us and we uh, we asked the Supreme Court uh this last year to take the case and um the court um at the same time, had a case from um, uh, another one from Colorado called 303 Creative, which was a wedding website designer. Mm-hmm. And the court ruled in favor of the website designer, saying she didn't have to participate in same-sex weddings. And so the court, again, rules in the client's favor and says, nope, Oregon Court of Appeals, you, you need to redo this yet again, not only in light of Masterpiece, but now also in light of 303 Creative. 
And so that's what we were doing last week was we were back at the Oregon Court of Appeals um, arguing to that court why the Kleins should win and why the court needs to protect their First Amendment rights after these nearly 10 years of, of litigation. Well, and here's what I don't get. And I understand how fastidious the high court is trying to be. You know, they're very judicious and they often work with uh, a scalpel rather than a butcher knife. They want to be very specific and hone in. So I'm sure their thinking was Oregon Court of Appeals should handle this. We shouldn't have to do it. And so, by the way, we've given you some clear guidance here. If it's not um, Jack Phillips and Masterpiece, then it certainly is 303 Creative. So I don't know how Oregon, in light of those two decisions, could possibly say anything but I'm sorry. So you were there, and I know, and, and I've learned this slow these many years, you you don't have X-ray eyes, you can never tell what a judge is thinking, and you certainly don't want to be a prophet when it comes to their potential outcome on a decision. But just your gut feeling, somebody who understands the law, what did you think, how receptive, let me put it this way, do you think you, the oral arguments were that were put forth were in protecting sweet cakes by Melissa? Well, the court and the, the judges certainly came prepared. They actually issued us some questions in advance that we would be asked so we would kind of know what they're, where, where they want to go. And, uh, and so we were well prepared to, to tell the court, listen, after, you know, two cases up or two times up to the Supreme Court and two cases from the Supreme Court, we, we have very clear guidance here. And, and that is that the clients have a First Amendment right to not say certain things. And here they don't want to use their speech and they don't want to use their religious beliefs to support um, or endorse a same-sex wedding. And, uh, you know, my my read of the argument is that it went well. You, um, you know, I, I kind of always uh, hold my breath a little bit and, and just <laughs> we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, but um, at the same time, you know, the, the judges did ask very good questions. Um, they seem to have done their homework on uh, the case and the 303 creative case and everything they needed to know. And, you know, I'm an optimist. I, I like to be encouraging. I, I, I hope we will uh, prevail in the end with, with the clients getting a victory and getting the $30,000 uh, uh, removed as a fine and, and having judgment in their favor um, after this long saga. But, you know, the, the point is here is that you know, all Americans have a constitutional right mm. to due process, mm -hmm. to free speech and religious liberty. And, and that's what the clients are standing here uh, for today. And it, it's something that um, more people need to do. Amen. And God bless them that they stayed the course for 10 years. I'm sure they didn't want to spend a decade of their life doing this. So being an optimistic realist, let's say that the bias and the animus of the Oregon Court of Appeals is so palpable that they decide that they're not going to remove the $30,000 fine. What happens to the clients? Can they kick this back up to the Supreme Court again? And if so, um, because it was sent back not once but twice, what would be the legal future for the clients if they lose again? Yeah, if they lose again, I mean, obviously a another disappointment. Um, but but there is they can appeal it to the Oregon Supreme Court. And then they can appeal it to the United States Supreme Court. And, you know, here at First Liberty, we're, we, we've stood with the clients for all these years. And mm -hmm. um, we're going to support whatever decision they make in terms of the next steps. Um, but we believe that the client's case would be a good case for the court to decide. It's got mm -hmm. some nuances in the law that I don't need to get into here. But it would be a great case for the court to, to rule on and rule on in their favor 
so that there are clear rules that states and, and local governments have to follow when protecting the religious liberty rights of you know small businesses like Sweet Cakes by Melissa. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And again, the Supreme Court has been very slow to really define what constitutes protected speech. And at least when we're looking at Masterpiece and we're looking at 303 Creative, they're beginning to understand that there needs to be some clarification as to what constitutes religious liberty, religious expression. Is it sometimes fondant? And is it butter and flour? Yes, it is, if that is your artistic expression. And then you have the right also to be able to say, because of my sincerely held beliefs, I cannot participate in something that's violative of what I believe. David, thank you for all the great, and I do mean great work of First Liberty and for what you're doing. Thanks for being here. Back after this, friends. Here's a question for you. Have you ever thought about the connection between your particular worldview and mental health? Think about that. Is there, in fact, a relationship between the two? Well, Dr. George Barnes says there absolutely is, and that's exactly what he told the students at Arizona Christian University recently when he talked about the linkage between worldview and mental health. Dr. Barna is the director of research and co-founder of the Cultural Research Center at ACU, Arizona Christian University. He's also a prolific author, and his most recent book is called Raising Spiritual Champions. And it is a wake-up call when his research points out that the foundational beliefs of 8- to 12-year-olds today, listen to this, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, the 8 to 12-year-olds today puts them on track to abandon biblical Christianity in record numbers. So raising spiritual champions is not an option. It is now a mandate. Dr. Barna, thank you so for being with us. I thought your talk to the students was brilliant in drawing this linkage between mental health and worldview. And it hasn't wasn't something that I had thought about before. So I listened to the entire lecture, and I realized that your target audience was 18 to 24-year-olds because you were challenging them to understand that the people who are suffering in the greatest numbers right now, all the research shows us that, are their peers. And so it gives them a marvelous opportunity to talk about the hopeless, hapless, helpless nature of their being because they don't have a biblical worldview. And you saw it as an opportunistic moment rather than a time of defeat. But maybe you need to lay the groundwork a little bit so that our friends listening all across the country understand exactly how severe mental illness is now with this particular age group. You started with some stats. I'd love for you to share some of that with us. Well, sure. Thanks for having me back. Uh, you know, one of the things that we discovered is that the government agencies that measure these things are telling us that among all adults in the country, 23% have a diagnosable mental disorder. That's a staggering number. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the 18 to 24-year-olds, it jumps up by about 50%. It jumps up to 34%. One out of every three 18 to 24-year-olds has a diagnosable mental disorder. You can break it down into a number of different ones. You know, serious mental disorders, 11% of our young adults. Any anxiety disorder, about one out of four of our young adults. We can look at alcohol and drug use disorders. That's almost three out of 10, 18 to 24-year-olds. And there are others here, depressive episodes, suicidal thoughts, all staggering statistics when you look at them. And that's what got me to thinking about how can these numbers possibly be this high? 
And that's when the whole worldview connection became clear. Wow. And that's what I want you to share with our audience, because for me, it wasn't self-evident. But when I saw you talk to the students, I thought, of course there is. And let me just say on your behalf, you were very gracious in saying, look, the usual forms of treating this are going to be prescription drugs, counseling, treatment facilities. And there may be a place for all of those. But if we ignore the problems presented with a worldview that is without Christ, then we do ourselves a disservice because in many of these cases, their behavior choices, their actions are linked back to their worldview. So talk about that with us. Yeah, my concern is looking at all this. And fortunately, uh, my youngest daughter is, is a professional counselor. So I get to hear her stories all the time of the young people that she works with and the challenges that she faces, trying to get them to consider that the Bible gives people the truths that they need to defeat the challenges in their life. And most people don't want to hear it. And it led me to start thinking about, you know what, I bet often what we're doing is we're treating the symptoms and not the cause mm -hmm. that people are dealing with. And, and the other thing that drove this home, we last year, uh, I think you and I spoke about it on a program, we did a big piece of research among millennials. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, we looked, we broke out the 18 to 24 year olds and found that a majority of them admit to often, not just sometimes, occasionally, rarely, but often feeling anxious, depressed, fearful, unsafe, or suicidal. Now, half of an entire group of people, 18 to 24-year-olds, feeling that on a frequent basis, I, I can't believe that that's mental illness. So we went back in and we started digging to try to find what do these people believe about how life works? Because that's what your worldview does. It helps you understand your belief about how the world works, your place in it, how you can respond to day-to-day -day challenges, what decisions should you make. And as we began looking at that, this all started to become clear. Because we found, for instance, that uh, less than half, only 40% of all 18 to 24-year-olds even believe in the God of Israel, a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect, the creator of the world, still in charge of that world today, well, right off the bat, you know, we're going to have problems because something's got to be in charge of all of this. Mm -hmm. And when we began to look at that a little deeper, we found that large proportions of them were saying, well, yeah, there is. It's me. It's like, okay, I think we're beginning to identify the problem. You know, and then you go deeper into their beliefs about the Bible and moral truth and sin and heaven, success, purpose, uh, you know, Eastern views like karma, reincarnation, you know, you'll get another chance to do better, all these kinds of things. And, you know, that, that it all adds up to, of course, people are going to feel anxious and depressed and fearful. When you're in charge, you don't know where things are going. You don't understand how things work. You don't feel that you have any source of power that you can tap into beyond yourself, yeah, I think if that were my worldview, I'd be anxious and depressed all the time, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You made that point beautifully when you were speaking at chapel to the students. And again, let me just underscore what you said about the Eastern mysticism, that, that more believe in karma than they do in Jesus. Well, karma is quintessentially, by, de by definition, haphazard. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you feel like you're floating, if there's no anchor, no basis to 
who you are, what you believe, and why you do the things that you do, boy, I tell you, I wouldn't want to put that pressure on myself, and that can't be good for your emotional or your mental health. No, of course not. And, you know, when you think about what karma is, and we, we talk to a lot of young people around the country about these things, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I understand karma. You know, you get what you deserve. Well, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is because Jesus died for my sins, I don't get what I deserve. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it's like, wow, what a transaction that is. Thank you, Lord, for loving me that much that you would say, okay, I know that you deserve to die a horrible death uh, and, 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 you know, be separated from from your Father in heaven for eternity, but I'm not going to allow that to happen because you, you, you acknowledged your sins, you turned to me, you, you believe in me, I'm going to take care of you. It's like, wow, that relieves a lot of stress and anxiety. Absolutely. And going back to not having a biblical worldview, there is no protection of the moral parameters. I I don't find that suffocating at all. I find that protective. Without that, you can make choices that can come back to haunt you and that do have clinical residuals. So, for example, you talk about the uptick in people who would believe in cohabitating before marriage or people who have abortions. Well, talk to the people who work at our pregnancy resource centers. What happens in the grief after an abortion? That has an impact on your mental health. What happens when you've cohabitated and the relationship dissolves? That has an impact on your mental health. So in other words, there's an impact mentally on decisions predicated on a flawed worldview. Is that overly simplistic or is that right? No, I think it's absolutely right. You know, one of the things that we discover, and and we've been doing a lot of research with young children too, and one of the things that I find is that uh, people thrive when they have boundaries. Mm. When, when, when everything is permissible, everything winds up in chaos. Your life is absolutely turbulent. And God knew that, and that's why he gave us the Bible. So people can say, oh, the Bible's a bunch of restrictions and rules that take away my freedom. Absolutely wrong. What the Bible does by giving us guidance giving us limitations, giving us boundaries, is it enables us to know what freedom is and then to be able to live in a way that we can enjoy that freedom without anxiety. And so I think so much of what goes on in our society, particularly what we get in mainstream media, leads us in the wrong direction by saying, you know what, when you put those kind of restrictions on yourself, you can't be who you are. It's like, well, frankly, I don't want to be who I am. I want to be who God made me to be. And if that's the case, then I also want to know, and what were the guidelines that he gave me to enable me to grow into that kind of persona? That's who I want to become. What an encouragement. Talk to our friends on how you gave this as a challenge filled with optimism to the 18 to 24-year-olds that you were talking to. Why is this an opportunity and not something to dread? You know, I teach here at Arizona Christian University, and one of our hallmarks, our our uniquenesses, is that every class we teach is taught from a biblical worldview. And, And our goal is that every student that leaves here will have that kind of mindset, be able to make decisions that are in harmony with God's ways. And so... I'm talking to, you know, a, a, an auditorium, a, actually a gymnasium filled with young people who are working on their worldview. And I want them to understand, look, you may not have it all together right now. That's okay. None of us does. We're all at different places on the journey. 
but you are moving in a direction that will help you to know God's truths and hopefully to live in concert with them. But think about your friends. When you go off campus to your part-time job, when you go home for the summer, you're going to meet a lot of people who don't have that, and you can help them. Mm. When we come back, I want to talk about your latest book, Raising Spiritual Champions, because it really is a wake-up call. Your research indicates about the age, the window, if you will, of when that worldview is formed and how quickly that can dissipate. And I think uh, parents listening need to understand that, why this is, and I made the statement earlier, this is not an option. This is a mandate for us to raise spiritual champions. Look outside your front door. Think it's easy out there? Or is it getting harder to stand up for truth and to really proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? More with Dr. George Barner right after this. If what you hear on In the Market with Janet Partial encourages you, enlightens you, engages you, and equips you, I want to ask you to become a partial partner today. This program depends on the faithful and ongoing support of listeners just like you. By supporting this program on a regular, ongoing, monthly basis, you'll receive several benefits that only my partners receive. So please call today, 877-JANET-58, or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Dr. George Barna is with us, director of research and co-founder of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. As you can tell, he's passionate about building worldview in our young people. His 60th book, if you're counting, is Raising Spiritual Champions. When it came out in 2023, it shot to the top of Amazon's bestseller list, and it remains the number one Amazon bestseller in Christian social science. And it's probably because it resonates with such profound and important truths. If you can say, as Dr. Barna does, that someone's worldview is essentially formed by the age of 13th, do the math. Those preteen years, ages 8 to 12, become all the more important. And Dr. Barna, you point out that there are five beliefs central to the Christian faith that are being widely rejected by children ages 8 to 12. Now, I find that interesting on a couple of levels, not the least of which is if you ask most 8 to 12-year-olds, what's the capital of Arizona? They couldn't tell you, let alone be thinking about these transcendent issues. And yet apparently they must be. You have to be thinking about them to either accept or reject them. But it's imperative that we start with understanding what those five key views are. So what are they? Well, uh, these are five of seven things that we call the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview. The five where we're having a real problem are things like understanding that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal salvation, believing that the Bible is the true words of God, believing that there are absolute truths, and, and that's what the Bible is conveying to us, uh, saying that your main reason for living is to know, love, and serve God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and to believe that real success while you're on earth is consistently obeying God. These are very simple kind of Sunday school 101 teachings, if you will. And yet, not only don't people go to Sunday school anymore, but very few children believe these things. When you put it all together, what we're doing is we're raising up yet another group of young people who has no idea what the Christian faith is all about, why they should believe it, why they should participate in it, how it could affect their life. They're looking to other sources of influence for their guidance, and it's to their detriment. Yes. 
And so much of that guidance, quote unquote, comes from social media. You know, we talk about the impact on mental health. What in the world are those platforms teaching our kids? First of all, that God made a mistake. You're in the wrong body. Uh, We just saw Mark Zuckerberg getting grilled on Capitol Hill because Facebook has led to the end of so many people's lives. Parents were standing there literally holding up pictures of their kids who had been under the influence of these platforms. So this raises, for a lot of parents, they're giants in the land and they're just grasshoppers, they think. And it's too daunting. And the world obviously has more influence on their child than they possibly could. You are an eternal optimist that came through loud and clear in your chapel address. You've also created in Raising Spiritual Champions a plan on how to instill a biblical worldview in these preteen years, 8 to 12 Give our parents, you know, get the book so you can get this in total. But right now, Dr. Barna, give us some hints on ways in which we can start doing that. And to the parent who immediately gets discouraged and says, well, my child's 16, I've blown it. Include them in the conversation as well. Is it ever too late to start? It's never too late to start. You're, you're going to have an easier time when the cement is still being poured than when the cement is drying or dried. Mm. And that's what happens when, when kids become teenagers and college students. That cement is rapidly drying. But it's never too late. If it was, I wouldn't be here at a university mm. that's working with kids on their worldview. But the best time is when you're working with kids, uh, you know, before the age of 13. So how do you make the most of that time? Well, first of all, you got to have a plan. See, what we found is that most parents, most Christian parents, most born-again parents go into parenting without any sense of the big picture of what they want to accomplish with their children spiritually and how they're going to accomplish that. Parents go into it with all kinds of plans. I'm not saying they don't have any plans, but they don't have spiritual plans for their kids. They have plans for their education, for their health, for their peers, for all kinds of other activities that their children will engage in or dreams that the parents have for their children's future. But we found that very, very few Christian parents have dreams about the spiritual depth and intensity of their children. That's critical. You got to start there and understand who God wants your child to be and what's your role in helping to make that happen. Then secondly, you got to understand that you've got to address the beliefs that your child possesses. Why? Because you do what you believe. So eventually they're going to participate in various behaviors. They're going to make millions of decisions over the course of their life. And that's all going to flow through their worldview, which is based on their beliefs. So if you want your child to live like Jesus, first thing they've got to do is think like Jesus, Mm -hmm. because they will then act upon those beliefs in the same way that Jesus would have. And so you got to work on their beliefs. The third thing in that process, then, is that you've got to work with your children in terms of what those behaviors are that come from that worldview. You've got to help shape it. You've got to give them feedback. And that's really the fourth thing is measuring and reinforcing and replicating and ultimately rejoicing in the fact that the Holy Spirit is giving you the knowledge, the power, the opportunity, the wisdom that you need to help shape the life of your child. Mm. Dr. Barney, you talked to the students at chapel about the importance of staying in the Word. Is that crucial? Again, it might seem like it's a self-evident truth, but is that crucial because you also pointed out that now people are making decisions on their feelings, not based on what is true. So how can parents do that today? 
Yeah, I mean, you've got to develop a habit. You know, it takes 30 days or so to develop a habit. Every morning, every night, whenever it may be, develop the habit of reading the Bible and read it with your children. Let them see you reading it. You've got to model what this is like. We're talking about basic discipleship. So, you know, you've got to have the Bible at the center of that process. Amen. It's never too late to start. Mom and Dad, please get Raising Spiritual Champions. You and I talk daily about the mess that's out there in the worldview, and yet that mess is exactly where we're called to go, the scriptures say. So if you don't want to be taken captive, as it says in the book of Colossians, by vain and hollow philosophies, worldviews that are not bibliocentric, then what do you do? You have to immerse yourself in the Word of God and then let our children see us living it out with authenticity in our own lives. Dr. Barna, thank you for this gift of your time and for all you do to wake up sleepy churches and sleepy Christian households. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time, friends.